Welcome to the Creekside Community Church Podcast. If you don't yet follow Jesus, we want to provide you with a safe place to explore the Christian faith. If you are a Christian, we want to provide you with resources to help you grow in your faith and ultimately serve Jesus more effectively. For more information or to partner with us, visit our website at creekside.cc. Subscribe so that you don't miss any of our messages. We hope this content helps you take your next step with Jesus. I just want to start by saying, um, if you weren't here last Sunday, you missed out on a great message, because uh, I didn't preach it. No, uh, in all seriousness, uh, Dr. Scott Winnig was here, who was my preaching professor, and he did a, a great job exploring this weird story about Jesus' interaction with this Canaanite woman, um, and you can go back on our YouTube channel and watch it there, or listen to our podcast. Um, and <clears throat> if you're in Connection Group uh, this morning, that we actually spent our time discussing that message. And uh, at least our group, I don't think, got to this question. Um, and, but it's really fascinating because when I listened to his message, I was like, oh, this, this, this passage makes so much more sense now. Except one lingering question for me was, if God loves us, why does he test us? If you look throughout scripture, there's stories of people's faith being tested and Jesus in the New Testament or God, uh, the Father in the Old Testament, kind of testing people's faith, putting them in circumstances where they might fail. And why would he do that? Because, um, and this brings up maybe a bigger question for you, because when you look at the stories, you realize very quickly that the way God responds to us depends in part on how we respond to these tests of faith. Like the story we looked at last week where this Canaanite woman and she comes before Jesus and she says, you know, please heal my daughter from this demon possession. And at first Jesus doesn't answer her. He doesn't say anything. And what if she had taken that, taken that as a no and left? Her daughter wouldn't have received the healing that she had come to Jesus for. But thankfully she perseveres in, in faith and he does heal her daughter. But Again, the question is, if our response to Jesus makes a difference, how is that not a work? Um, Now, I don't want to bore you with church history, but this is not just a, like, theological or theoretical question. This question about faith versus works caused a huge split in the church in the 1500s. Because leading up to that time, especially for 100 years or so, The Catholic Church kind of was teaching, hey, uh, you know, if you do these good works, that kind of helps your salvation a little bit, especially gets you out of some uh, years of torment and purgatory. And Martin Luther and other reformers in the 1500s came along and said, nope, when we read this, looks like it's based off of God's grace, not works. And this was such a big clash and such a big argument that it caused what we call now today the Protestant Reformation that changed the course of European history and worldwide history to a large extent. It is the reason we're here. We're, we're inheritors of that tradition if you're part of Creekside. Uh, we are amongst and in uh, that Reformation result. Churches breaking off from Roman Catholicism because they said, no, it's all about God's grace. 
But again, the question is, if, if how God responds to us depends partly on how we respond to him, again, how is that not in some way a work? Like if you had responded differently, he would respond differently? How does that, how does that work? And so uh, instead of answering this question theologically, although some of you would like that, many of you would not, uh, I'm going to answer it narratively uh, through looking at the story. Because that same question gets raised in the text we're going to look at this week. Uh, we're going to look at the story of Jesus calling a man named Simon to follow him and be his disciple. And eventually Simon becomes who we now know as the Apostle Peter. And there's this miraculous catch of fish. But if you read through the story, it becomes very clear very quickly that one thing leads to another. Jesus is preaching. There's too many people. And he says, Simon, can I borrow your boat? Simon says, yes. So Jesus preaches to the crowd from the boat. And then Jesus says, Simon, can you go out and fish during daytime when you're not supposed to fish? Let down your nets for one more catch. And Simon says, yes. But again, it raises the question, what if he had said, no, you can't borrow my boat. Sorry, Rabbi, find someone else's boat. What if he said, no, I'm not going to throw my nets out there again. If Simon had not said yes, uh, Christian history as we know it, the book of Acts, it'd all be pretty different, wouldn't it? Our lives might be different. And I actually believe that the stakes for you and I are just as high. And so I want to encourage you to listen and tune in today because it could just be that God wants to speak to you today and maybe is inviting you to, in a figurative way, let him borrow your boat or to throw out your nets for a catch, to do something that doesn't really make sense. And we can't know on this end of things what hangs in the balance of the decision to say yes to that. So if you have your Bible, I encourage you to follow along. This is Luke chapter five. We're gonna work uh, our way eventually today through verses one through 26. And let's look at the story of of Jesus calling this man named Simon who becomes Peter, and then uh, some stories of healing of Jesus healing this man who has leprosy and then uh, another story of a paraplegic. And Jesus' interaction with all these people brings up these kind of themes of our response to Jesus. So again, if you have a Bible, Luke chapter five, verse one. If you don't, it will be on the screen. It says this, as the crowd was pressing in on Jesus to hear God's word, he was standing by Lake Gennesaret. Now there's confusion here, Lake Gennesaret is synonymous with the Sea of Galilee. It's the same place. It just had like 10 different names in the first century. So he's at the Sea of Galilee, you know, all these different towns around, and uh, he's at one of those towns. And Jesus sees two boats at the edge of the lake. The fishermen had left the towns, uh, sorry, had left the boats and were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, which belonged to Simon, and asked him to put a little, out a little from the land. And then he sat down and he was teaching the crowds from the boat. This is an important detail because in a few minutes, you're going to read that Jesus asked Simon to do something pretty difficult and embarrassing and socially awkward in a way. But notice what happens first. Jesus starts with something small. Can I borrow your boat, Simon? And while Jesus is borrowing Simon's boat, what's happening? Jesus is preaching. So what is Simon hearing? This amazing rabbi's teaching. He's hearing Jesus' teaching. When Jesus had finished speaking, then he said to Simon, put out into deep water 
and let down your nets for a catch. Now again, to us in our modern day and age, we're like, okay, yeah, go fishing. What's the big deal? On the Sea of Galilee, days are hot, nights are cool. And when you're fishing with a net, not a pole with a hook, you're fishing with a net, you have to, you have to fish at times when the fish are near the surface. And when it's hot during daytime, fish go down deeper. The fishermen would always fish at nighttime because night, it's cool, fish come closer to the surface. That's when you can fish. Can't fish during the day. All the fish are way down there where your nets can't get them. So this is why Simon says, Master, <clears throat> we've worked hard all night long and caught nothing. And you can kind of read between the lines. Like, the tone undercurrent is like, do you even know about fishing? <laughs> like, you're a great teacher and all, but have you worked with your hands on the water, right? We've worked hard all night and caught nothing. But if you say so, if you say so, I'll let down the nets. When they did this, they caught a great number of fish, and their nets began to tear so they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. They came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' feet. Sorry, fell at Jesus' knees and said, go away from me because I'm a sinful man, Lord. For he and all those who were with him were amazed at the catch of fish they had taken and so were James and John, Zebedee's sons, who were Simon's partners. Don't be afraid, Jesus told Simon. From now on, you will be catching people. And then they brought the boats to land, left everything, and followed Jesus. It's an amazing story. And if you have your bulletin notes, you can kind of follow along with some of the highlights. But we're going to look at Simon the fisher uh, changes what he fishes for in the story. So again, Jesus says, you know, put out into deep water, Simon, let down your nets for a catch. Jesus asked Simon to do something both embarrassing and seemingly pointless. This is not when you fish. This is not how you fish. And I think it's interesting because as you seek to follow Jesus, wherever you are in that process, whether you're here and you don't consider yourself a Christian, you're just looking for answers, or if you've been a Christian for years, as you seek to follow Jesus, inevitably, all of us, I think, at one time or another, or at many points along the way, Jesus will ask you to do something both embarrassing and seemingly pointless. <laughs> Has this ever happened to you? Where Jesus, through his Holy Spirit, nudges you, he's like, I want you to go talk to that person, or I want you to go risk and do something. And in your mind, it's like, uh, embarrassing one, and there's going to be no fruit from this, God. So, why? It's a little bit of a test, isn't it? It's a risk. Just like he asked Simon to risk. I think God does this for all of us as we seek to follow him. He'll ask us to do things that don't make any sense to us. And again, the scary thing is we don't know what hangs in the balance of saying yes or no. When I read through the story, I, I, was, I was confused, actually, at Peter's response. 
Do you guys catch what he says? There's this amazing catch of fish. And so I would expect his response to be like, thank you, rabbi. And yet Simon's response is this. When he sees this miraculous catch of fish, he falls at Jesus' knees and says, go away from me because I'm a sinful man, Lord. So interesting to me because Jesus has not said anything about his sin. I'm like, why does Peter respond this way? Bunch of fish. Wow, I'm a sinful man. (laughs) What's the logical connection there, right? Isn't it strange? And I was greatly helped as I read some commentaries on this passage. They pointed out the fact that the way Simon responds to Jesus is strange for the story, but it's actually very much in line with the way people respond to God throughout the Old Testament scriptures. When God shows up in people's lives or in a vision, this is how they respond. So just one example of many. Uh, when Isaiah sees this vision of the Lord in his heavenly temple, how does he respond? Then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and because my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of armies. There's something about when people come to face-to-face with God, that they realize, wow, I have no business being in his presence. I am so unworthy. And what you realize is that this is Simon's response. Simon has gotten somehow through this miracle, God has made known to Simon that this is not just another rabbi. Somehow this is actually God himself walking and talking around. And so Simon responds exactly like people do whenever they see God show up. It reminds me, uh, a number of years ago, Janelle and I were um, doing a house project, which we are uh, always doing, actually. But uh, we were repainting part of our room that we had already painted. And um, I remember, Janelle, the color was Snowfall, right? It was this white color called Snowfall. And so I went to Home Depot because we ran out and I got more snowfall. And we started putting it on and we're like, well, it doesn't look like it's the same, but maybe it'll dry correctly. And it did not dry correctly. The new paint was like very yellow. What is going on? Why is this yellow? Both say snowfall. Well, it turns out the original paint was snowfall white. And this was just plain snowfall. Now, if you had put snowfall white over there and snowfall over there, you would look at both of them and say, they're white. But when you bring them side by side, (laughs) it becomes very clear very quickly, nope, that one's yellow. And here's my point. All of us have a natural tendency to say, I'm a pretty good person. I'm pretty okay. But when Peter comes face to face with Jesus right next to him. And when you and I come face to face with God and the Holy Spirit convicts our hearts, it becomes very clear very quickly, like, hmm, no, not that great after all. Lots of brokenness in my heart and sin. And this is what's happening to Peter. And this is kind of the, the, what has to come before what happens next of following him and committing your life. To him of that conviction of sin and the realization of, no, I'm not where I need to be. 
Again, they're all amazed. And Jesus' response is, don't be afraid. From now on, you will be catching people. Then they brought the boats to land, left everything, and followed him. Now, uh, in, in our, actually, in our text next week, we're going to look at Jesus calling uh, Levi, and we're going to explore more of the dynamics of discipleship and following Jesus and what that entails. Um, but just to give a small hint of where we're going, in the first century context, following a great rabbi was actually a great honor, and young Jewish men would have aspired to become such a bright star that they would be able to follow a great rabbi. And so when Jesus invites Peter and James and John to follow him, this was not like a, like, a, it was, there was sacrifice involved. They had to leave their old life behind, but there was also excitement, right? It'd be like some young kid in high school graduating and like getting a full ride to a college because they made it on the sports team. It's also a big honor. Yes, you have to leave home to do that, but it's actually a great honor. And I find it interesting, just in the context of what happens next, knowing what happens next, that Peter goes on, uh, Simon goes on to be called Peter, and he becomes this cornerstone of the early church. And when you read through the book of Acts, in response to his preaching led by the Holy Spirit, thousands of people turn to Jesus and follow him. And think about what Jesus says. From now on, you'll be catching people. And what just happened? It's a miraculous catch of fish. Let me ask you, that miraculous catch of fish, was that due to Peter being an amazing fisherman? I think what Jesus is foreshadowing and encouraging Peter is like, you're going to do, you're going to do amazing things, Peter, but don't forget, it's not because you're so awesome, but because I'm so great. And just like this miraculous catch of fish had nothing to do with you, so in the end, all those people turn into faith is ultimately a result of the Holy Spirit's work in their heart. And the Holy Spirit's working through you, not just you being so great, Peter. So Simon the Fisher is kind of a summary of what happens. From now on, you're going to be fishing for people. And uh, I'm going to give you the main point now, and you're going to see this actually in all the stories that follow. My own point today is that the more you follow Jesus, as you take steps with Jesus, the more it will cost you. The more you follow the bad thing, it will cost you. What did it cost Peter at first? Borrow your boat. Can I borrow your boat? How high of a price is that? Not that high, right? So Peter takes a step. And then what does it cost him next? Throw your nets in <laughs> during daytime. Well, there's a crowd of people on shore watching you. Higher cost, isn't it? And Peter obeys. And then Jesus says, follow me. Now I'll make you into a fisherman. And now what does it cost, Peter? Leaving behind his boats and his nets and following Jesus. The more you follow Jesus, the more it will cost you. There's an important caveat that I'll get to in a minute, but we're going to see this worked out um, in all the stories to follow. That following Jesus actually costs us something. 
Part of this is just the nature of committing to a mission that's greater than you. So our kids have been playing soccer this year. Um, well, not this year, just the last couple of months, but it's felt like a year in ways. Uh, and they've done a great job um, at an team. Actually, our oldest were on a team together. And just yesterday, they had their tournament. And so um, they played their first game. And if they won, they got to play again. If they won, they got to play in the finals. And it was interesting because... Ada, I hope you don't mind me sharing this, but you, going into it, Ada was a little bit like, what do we get out of this? <laughs> if we win, what happens? And we're like, you get bragging rights, right? And going into it, Ada was like, almost, I think a little bit like, I'm okay if we lose the first game, right? And then we don't have to play a second or third. <laughs> but Ada and Anna won their first game. And then they won their second game. And we were talking just briefly before their final game, and then Adam was like, I hope we win this last game, right? <laughs> because now, like, you're in it, right? You're there, and it's like, yes, we could do this. We could win. And <clears throat> if you want to know, unfortunately, they did not win their final game. But they tried hard, they worked hard, and they did a great job at it. Yeah, you did great. You, you worked really hard. Um, but isn't any mission like that, right? They had a mission to do their best, to try and win. And what did that take? That took Monday practices. That took Saturday games. And that took all day Saturday. If you think about it in life, this is just a true thing of anything. Any worthy endeavor is going to involve commitment. So we talk about this idea of the more you follow Jesus, the more it will cost you. That's just the nature of anything that is worth doing. Some of you have like dreams and things you're working on, like uh, you want to become a published author. How much is that going to cost you over the years? Time and effort and writing and hours you could have spent doing other things, right? But it's worth it because you have this dream in your heart and you're following God in that because you're committing to this mission, right? Does that make sense? Any mission you commit yourself to will cost you. There's going to be a cost. There's other things you could have chosen to do. All right, let's move on. And again, we're going to see the same dynamic in uh, the following passages. So while Jesus was in one of the towns, and now you get to picture that Peter and James and John are now with them, right? They're following him. While Jesus was in one of the towns, a man was there who had leprosy all over him. Pause really quick. There's something about this setup in just this half verse that... Um, Wow, it's sounding really weird, Carrie. Is everything okay? Can you guys hear me okay? Okay, good. All right, as long as you can hear me okay. That's great. Um, either Jesus is in the wrong place or this man is in the wrong place. If you have leprosy, you are not supposed to be in towns. You are supposed to stay away. And not just because they had this idea of like, you know, pandemic-related, you know, isolate yourself, quarantine yourself. Um, it was actually you were ritually unclean. And in the Old Testament Jewish law, if you were ritually unclean, you could get other people ritually unclean by touching them or being too close to them. So it says, while he is, was in one of the towns, a man was there who had leprosy all over him. This man is unclean. He should not be in this town. Why is he there? Yeah, you said it, because Jesus is there. 
this man is risking a lot. He's risking the wrath of the townspeople that they saw him. In some ways, I mean, Jesus is a great rabbi. He's supposed to be embodying the law and holding people to the law. He's actually risking the anger of Jesus, too. He doesn't know how Jesus is going to respond beforehand. Jesus could very well say, get out of here. What are you doing here? And yet this man goes into the town. This man sees Jesus. He falls face down and he begs him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. I love this. Jesus could have just used a word, but he doesn't. Remember ritual uncleanness? Can't touch people. But Jesus, reaching out his hand, touched him, saying, I am willing, be made clean. And I just feel like this is a picture of the whole story of Jesus in a way. Because people's understanding, again, before this was that, like, sin spread like contagion. And if you have sin and uncleanness and you touch someone else, then it spreads to them. And they would have thought, this rabbi is clean, but now he's just been touched, and now, now Jesus will be made unclean. But for Jesus, it was the opposite, wasn't it? It's like Jesus' cleanness spreads to others. And that's the whole gospel story, isn't it? Him giving his cleanness and healing to us. So Jesus says, I am willing, I am willing, be made clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And then he ordered him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and offer what Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. This is an important side note that's going to set up the next story. Jesus is paving the way for the religious leaders to hear about his ministry and consider what he's doing. Saying, hey, you go be a testimony to those religious leaders in Jerusalem. Let them know what I'm doing. He's also saying, like, hey, can you just not spread this abroad yet? Why is that? Well, you see why, because it doesn't happen, right? But the news about Jesus spread even more, and large crowds would come together to hear Jesus and to be healed of their sicknesses. Yet he often withdrew to deserted places and prayed. Uh, what you'll see in the story that we're going to look at in just a moment is that things got so crowded, people couldn't even get to Jesus. He got so popular so quickly that it actually, in some ways, inhibited his ministry. Or he wanted to heal people, but there were so many people listening that he couldn't get the healing to them. Does that make sense? And so... Um, it's like, hey, let's keep this small, but that doesn't happen. It just explodes. And I love how the more Jesus was demanded, the more people demanded Jesus, the more he made time to spend with his heavenly father. On one of those days, while Jesus was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and also from Jerusalem. Again, we just read passages, but this is a big deal. Jerusalem to Galilee, that's a long journey. That takes a few days. So now religious leaders are coming to hear Jesus and to see what he's doing. And the Lord's power to heal was in him. And just then, some men came, carrying on a stretcher a man who was paralyzed. And they tried to bring him in and set him down before him, since they could not find a way to bring him in because of the crowd. So pause. This is the issue, right? Do you see the problem? <laughs> so many crowds that people can't even be healed. 
They couldn't find a way to bring him in because of the crowds. They went up on the roof and lowered him on the stretcher through the roof tiles into the middle of the crowd before Jesus. And I want you to just pause and think about what did it cost these men to do this for their friend? And what did it cost this friend? The danger is we're so familiar with these stories. We grew up with them. I heard this since I was a little kid. We're like, of course Jesus healed him. But they didn't know that. They had no guarantees. They just know Jesus is a great rabbi. Why are they risking digging through someone's roof? I mean, they're risking the ire of whoever's house Jesus is in and using right now, right? And they're risking Jesus himself being like, what are you guys doing? (laughs) They don't know things are going to turn out well, but they're willing to risk to get to Jesus. And seeing their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. And then the scribes and the Pharisees began to think to themselves, who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But perceiving their thoughts, Jesus replied to them, why are you thinking this in your hearts? Which is easier to say? To say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he told the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your stretcher, and go home. Immediately he got up before them, picked up what he had been lying on, and went home glorifying God. And then everyone was astounded, and they were giving glory to God, and they were filled with awe and said, we have seen incredible things today. I love this story for so many reasons, and because we're trying to do bigger chunks of Scripture, I, I always have to cut a lot of things out that I love to talk about, but just some of the highlights. I love Jesus' question, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or get up and walk? What do you guys think? Which is easier to say? I mean, if it's just me, and you're saying, Luke, which is easier for you to say to someone else, I would say it's probably easier to say your sins are forgiven than to say, get up and walk. Jesus says, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, therefore, get up and walk. He pronounces the forgiveness of sins, and they're like, nope, no, 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 no. Only God can do that. And then Jesus says, if you do not believe who I am on the basis of my claim, believe on the evidence. Watch what I do now. If you can't believe on the basis of the claims, believe on the basis of the evidence. And I, I love this response in so many ways. Jesus doesn't just flat out condemn them for their lack of faith. He actually gives them another handle. This, I get it. Here is a big reason to believe. I think this applies to those of you uh, watching or here today. Again, if you're just exploring all this and you have a lot of questions. 
because you've been told things about Jesus that are hard to believe. And I would just love to encourage you with Jesus' own words. If you can't believe on the evidence of the claims themselves, would you consider the evidence? Because there is so much evidence for Jesus being who he really said he was. Historical, hard evidence. And if you don't know where to look to that, find that. Um, Jake, Deanna, Kirk, and I, we all have various resources we'd love to give you. We can get coffee and talk about it. But again, the more you follow Jesus, the more it will cost you. It could very well be that your next step is to simply investigate. And you know what? That will cost you. It will cost you time. It will cost you some focus and maybe reading something and considering, doing some investigation. But if that's where you are, please don't say, oh, I'm not worth it. Because the question, if Jesus is really who he says he is, it changes everything. And it has the potential to change everything in your life. And I, I just think it's too important not to actually question and to dig in and do the work. Would you be willing to pay that cost to take that next step with him if that's where you are? So again, here's what we've seen in all three of these stories is that the more you follow Jesus, the more it will cost you. And there was cost involved in all of these. Did you guys see it? There was cost for Peter. There was cost for this man who had leprosy. He risked something in going into that town. There was risk for these friends in bringing their friend to Jesus and digging a hole in someone else's roof. There was risk in all of these. It cost each of them something. And so let's go back to that question I opened with of, okay, how is that not then a work in some way? What's the way through this question of faith and works and how they go together? Now, just some more historical context to that great debate that happened 500 years ago, but that actually we're still inheritors of in some way. Uh, That debate was never about whether or not there's effort or action involved in our faith. It was specifically about meritorious works, which is just a fancy way of saying works that earn you something. The question is not whether action is involved in following Jesus. The question is whether or not those actions earn you anything with Jesus. Do the good works that God calls you to do, do they earn you salvation or favor with God? Let me give you uh, an analogy that I think will maybe make this more clear. Let's say, and this is a big fantasy because this would never happen, but let's say I came to you and said, hey, um, Tony, I have a gift for you. I have paid for an all-inclusive cruise for you. I paid the whole thing. I'll pay for airfare. I'll even pay for travel insurance because you know what? In our world, who knows what'll happen, right? Uh, I paid for everything. Give this to you. Now, if Tony wanted to take advantage of that, what would he have to do? Go. Yes, he would have to go. Oh, you said no. Oh, well, I don't know what to say to that. Sorry, Jonah. All right. Uh, If you want to take advantage of this, let's say this gift was for you, all-inclusive vacation, a week on a cruise, all the meals paid for, airfare paid for. What would you have to do? Uh, I heard someone say it. Take off work. Take a week off of work, right? 
What else would you have to do? You'd have to go, right? You'd have to take time, go to the airport, get a ride to the airport. Get dog sitters if you have dogs, right? You have to cancel your other cruise, right? Yeah, because we all have <laughs> cruises booked up, right? <laughs> yeah. Now, here's my point. This is a huge gift, right? If you wanted to accept this gift, you would actually have to give up some things in order to accept it, wouldn't you? Now, that is true. And at the same time, those things you give up in no way pay for the trip, right? Like, how silly would it be if on the aftermath, if, if this actually happened by some crazy turn of events, and Tony went on this cruise, and they came back, and you're like, how was it? Was it awesome? You're like, yeah, but um, it was just lame that I had to pay for it by taking a week off of work. Wait, I thought Luke paid for the whole thing. Oh, he did, but I had to take a week off of work. Yeah. Isn't that kind of silly? This is what happens, I think, in our minds when we think about salvation and faith and works and why we get confused. We're like, okay, it's a free gift. Salvation is totally free. You cannot earn it. Here you go. We say, yes, I accept this. And to live this out involves costs. And we're like, wait a second. I'm paying these costs. I'm paying something. I'm giving some things up. Do you see the difference? In no way, by taking time off of work, getting a dog sitter or getting babysitters, does that actually mean you paid for the vacation? The vacation was a gift. Yeah, you need stuff to do. Uh, this is how I think faith and works go together. Totally free gift, and there's stuff for us to do. And those are actually not opposed to each other. That's the nature of a gift. And that's the nature of a commitment. And so I want to ask you today, and for you to consider, as you are thinking about where your next step is with Jesus, I am sure that there will be a cost involved. I want to make sure we're on the same page, that you paying that cost does not mean you earned anything with God. He does not offer you forgiveness because you blank. Salvation is a free gift. But at the same time, the more you follow Jesus, the more it will cost you. And I was trying to think of like things that like have been difficult for me to give up. And what I realized is there have been a lot of things over the years that, that God has asked me to, to pay, to give up, to surrender. But they haven't felt like a lot since I was younger because I think that the more you follow Jesus, the second thing is also true. The happier you are to pay that price because you've seen and experienced what happens on the other side of yes. The more you follow Jesus, the more it'll cost you. But to simply focus on the cost, if you say yes to that, that, on the back end of that, you're like, that's amazing, right? The more you follow Jesus, the happier you are to pay that cost that price, because you've seen what happens on the other side. And if you're not sure it's worth it, just ask Simon. Who paid that price and saw this miracle of catch a fish and then paid price to take another step with Jesus and begin to follow him and saw him work miracles and give this amazing teaching that changed the world and continue to follow him 
And even though he actually denied Jesus, be restored by Jesus on the back end of that and continue to follow him and serve him, continue to pay that price. Ask this leper who risked social rejection to get to Jesus, if it was worth that price. Say, for a cleansed life and restoration of my friends and family and my community, absolutely it was worth it. Ask this man who is a paraplegic and ask his friends who risked and paid a price to get their friend to Jesus. Was it worth it? Yeah. One group of people you probably shouldn't ask is the religious leaders. Because if you look at their story, it just looks to me like they were not willing to pay the price of taking the next step. But they stopped. So my question for you is, where are you? I think all of us get to a point where God's gonna ask us to do something seemingly pointless and probably embarrassing, where there's a price to pay in taking our next step with him. There's a cost, but it's worth paying. And so for you, um, it could be that for you, it's moving from this with your money and your stuff to this. There is a literal price involved in doing that, isn't there? But it's worth doing. For you, maybe the way God's working in your heart right now, in your life right now, Maybe the next step and the price that God is calling you to pay in following Jesus is to be honest and share a secret sin, something that's happened in the past that you would rather stay hidden. And God is just pushing you forward, saying it's time to confess it. There will be a price to doing that, won't there? There might be a relational price to pay for that. But as anyone who has gone through the journey of healing will tell you, it is worth paying that price because God can do such stuff on the other side of that. For you following Jesus, I don't know what the price is. It might be um, social risk. Maybe you're kind of a secret Christian and your coworkers ask, ask you, you know, what are you doing this weekend? And you only talk about Saturday. And maybe the next step for you is to pay the price of that social awkwardness, of just being honest about the fact that you're a follower of Jesus and a part of a, of a Christian community because that's looked down on our culture as being silly and backwards and all these things. Maybe that's the next step for you is being more honest and open with your friends or family about where you are with Jesus. It could be something totally different. as varied from risking social awkwardness, to surrendering something, to engaging in a relationship with someone. But I do know this, for all of us, Jesus invites us forward. And there's a price to pay, and that does not earn us anything. It's simply a fact of this is the nature of accepting a gift, and this is the nature of having this big, huge mission that you're involved with. Because Jesus came to do both. He invited people to follow him and accept his gift of healing, and then sent them out on mission. And there's this huge mission God invites all of us to take part in, this mission of reconciling every person on this earth to the Father through the Son. 
And he says, I want you to participate in that. And so there will be prices to pay. There will be costs to pay along the way. But it's worth it. So uh, let me pray for you and pray for our time of response. We're gonna sing a song in a moment, and this is our time for each of us to consider what is that next step, and would you be willing to take it? Jesus, I thank you for this time that we've been able to share studying you, Jesus, and considering your words 2,000 years ago as you challenged people forward and brought healing to people. God, we know that you are still speaking today because you are the risen Lord Jesus. And through your Holy Spirit, you still want to bring healing to people's lives. And you are still calling each of us forward with you. God, would we not get all confused and muddled in our heads and make excuses that, oh, well, we shouldn't have to do that because that would be a work and we don't, we're not supposed to do works. Would we be willing to pay whatever price it takes to take our next step with you? Would you give us, each of us, wisdom in this next few moments about what that is? And would you give us the courage to take that step, maybe even today or this week? And would we not look to our own strength to do that, but to you? We thank you that you're the healer of our hearts and the world. Would you work that healing in each of us? In your name we pray. Amen. Mm-hmm.